You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. I'm your host, Dr. J, and today I'm joined by Jason Reed to talk about the Waldo moment, the third episode of the second season of Black Mirror, which first aired in 2013. Jason Reed is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern Maine. He is the author of The Micropolitics of Capital, Marx and the Prehistory of the Present, published by SUNY in 2003, and The Politics of Trans-Individuality, published by Brill in 2015 and then re-released by Haymarket in 2016. And also a forthcoming collection of essays entitled The Production of Subjectivity Between Marxism and Post-Structuralism. He blogs on popular culture, philosophy, and politics at unemployednegativity.com. He's currently writing a book provisionally titled Double Shift, The Ideology and Economy of Work. Although we run in the same professional circles and have a lot of common friends, this is actually my first time having a real conversation with Jason. I've been a big fan of his blog for a while, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. Uh, He has a special knack for writing keen and insightful essays on film and philosophy. So I'm really excited to have him here today to talk about Black Mirror's The Waldo Moment. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I would say likewise, we never really had a chance to have a conversation. This is going to be our first conversation. I'm excited to have it. Yeah. Okay. So Jason, right at the beginning of every episode, what I like to do is ask my guests to summarize the episode that we're talking about. So could you summarize the Waldo moment? Sure. The episode begins, and I think this is striking, it begins with a young woman named Gwendolyn Harris who's trying out for the labor position that's the labor candidacy for an MP position, which has recently opened up. Then we cut to a comedy show and we meet a writer named Jamie, who primarily on this comedy show voices this blue bear called Waldo, who does a version of almost a Borat, but more crude humor where he interviews people and gets them to embarrass themselves and so on. We then quickly learn that there's interest in expanding the Waldo character into his own show which the Jamie person is unhappy with because he he wants to be seen as more than just Waldo, and he's unhappy if Waldo can really go that far. The producers come up with this idea that since there's this newly contested election because of a scandal, a Twitter scandal of, of an MP, they could run Waldo as a candidate and use that to fill up a whole kind of show. So since Waldo's a cartoon character and primarily appears on television, he appears on the side of this van, And they mainly harass Monroe, and Monroe is the Tory, the Conservative Party candidate, who's a shoe-in to win. Meanwhile, Jamie and Gwendolyn meet up at this bar slash hotel because they're both staying in the area for their respective candidacies. They hit it off. They spend the night together. But she quickly learns from her kind of handler from the party that she shouldn't be spending time with a candidate, especially a joke candidate. So she kind of quickly ends the relationship right before all the candidates are going to be in this debate. And because of this, I think this is my reading of it, that Jamie as Waldo not only ridicules Monroe, but ridicules Gwendolyn Harris as well. This kind of allows him to go viral. This kind of turns the whole Waldo thing into this huge kind of moment 
which attracts the interests of the CIA. And the CIA sees the, the possibility of Waldo being used globally as a kind of template to contest elections, to bring down people they want to bring down. And also, to they also mention the idea that you can use Waldo with any kind of message as, as something that can go viral. The Janie person is less and less comfortable with this. He tries to denounce himself as Waldo and point out that he is a joke and that people should pay attention to real politics. That doesn't really work because people are more attached to Waldo than they are to the voice behind Waldo. Waldo doesn't win. the. We learn the, the results of the election. Waldo doesn't win. The conservative candidate wins, as you would expect. Waldo does come in second. And then the whole episode ends with this odd kind of coda of you see Jamie with these other people sleeping under a bridge, homeless, and uh, Waldo has become a global political. You see him all over the television, fighter jets taking off with the Waldo's face on them and the idea that it's Waldo's world now. So Waldo becomes the kind of dominant political force in society globally. Yeah, he becomes the kind of big brother. It, it reminds me in that those final scenes of the episode of the eye in The Great Gatsby, <laughs> the sort of overlooking everything. So only one quick thing I want to add to your summary, yeah. which listeners may not know, which is that in robotics, Waldo is a term for hand-operated puppet or machine or something like this. And so this, the Waldo moment is named after both the character in the episode and, and in reference to this robotics term. Jason, so are you a big super fan of Black Mirror? Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of Black Mirror. Okay, so you probably know then that when you read on the interwebs people's rankings of all the Black Mirror episodes, the Waldo moment pretty consistently ends up at the bottom. And which is interesting. And even Charlie Brooker, the creator of Waldo, of sorry, of Black Mirror, has said in interviews that this is the episode he wish he could have done over. I think at one point he said this would have been better as its own series, but even he thinks it's the worst of the episodes. However, it was originally aired in 2013, and it has gained a whole new significance since. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about why you think for many years this was not the favorite episode of a lot of people and why you think now people are reevaluating it. Yeah, that's exactly what drew me to this episode, is that it is considered to be both one of the worst but oddly, at the same time, one of the most relevant. And the combination of those two things, I think, is very provocative. Like, how could something fail at the level of being an engaging kind of narrative, but at the same time be the most prophetic? And that made me think about, because Charlie Brooker came out recently and said that there was going to be no season of Black Mirror this year because... This year is already too Black Mirror. And it, yeah. you know, it's part of this question about it being both so seen as the worst, but also seen as the most prophetic, that makes me think about what is it like to try and write the kind of satire that Black Mirror is trying to be now. And that may be something which in some sense feels so heavy-handed. Because you know, this is a constant reference in people in the Trump years, especially. If you read a book or saw a movie that had the Four Seasons total landscaping scene in it. You would, think, <laughs> you would think it was terrible, 
ham-fisted, heavy-handed, horrible fiction, but it is reality. And I feel like, <laughs> like that's our Waldo moment now, is that maybe bad versions of social satire work better than good versions because of what's happening now. There is a lot in this episode that is way too rushed. But there's also a lot that I like about it, too. And and one of the things I like about it, this goes back to, I didn't know the thing about the Waldo robot thing. Because one of the questions I have for this episode is, I don't really know, is this episode seems like it hinges less on a specific technological innovation and more of a general social transformation. Because yeah. I don't know watching it, like the thing he does with the little hand moving the, the Waldo animation, is that possible? It looks possible to me. That could happen right now. I don't know. But this is not like one of those Black Mirror episodes where you get a gizmo or gadget and then you watch the social effects of that gizmo or gadget unfold. The gadget is less important to this. It's more about prevailing social attitudes about politics and society that unfold that I think are interesting. But the main thing I think is interesting about this episode and why I like it, despite the fact that I, I see the way it doesn't work, is that it offers an interesting and I think important way of thinking about political ideologies. When we think about ideology, we usually think of this idea of people beholden dogmatically to a set of ideas. And that the antidote to that is skepticism and criticism and so forth. And I think what the interesting thing about Waldo is that the whole idea of Waldo is that it may be more effective to disseminate a kind of crude skepticism or criticism as a prevailing political ideology than asking people to uphold any idea. Because a lot of what Waldo does throughout the episode, and this comes out in the discussion with a CIA person, is they keep pointing out that everything that they accuse politicians of is true of Waldo, but that's why it works, right? When there's a scene where he says, if we go on this television show, it's going to be clear that we have a whole crew of people Googling stuff for us and doing research. And, and it said, so do all the other politicians, but you're honest about it. And that's why it works. And then the line that comes up in the debate scene, Waldo says to the politician, you are faker than I am, and I'm a blue bear. This sense that somehow the being open about deception and fabrication is both an effective ideology in the sense that people are like, yes, I like the blue bear because the blue bear admits that he's fake. I don't like the politician because the politician tries to be real. It makes the, the way in which Waldo disseminates this sense of general kind of knowing skepticism as its, as its own kind of ideology, right? The sort of version of they're all corrupt, but how that view of things doesn't really produce a critical perspective on politics. It actually produces its own kind of acquiescence to the prevailing order of things. That is so true. And oh man, there's so much in just what you said there. I do want to say that I agree with you that this is one of the few episodes that does not present us with a you know futuristic technology. I think it's this episode, the national anthem, and shut up and dance. None of them have futuristic technologies in it. I actually personally really love those episodes because they do serve as well, as the title of the series, Black Mirrors, technologies reflect our ourselves back to ourselves. But I want to pick up on the thing that you just brought up, which is this, this sort of 
love affair that we have, and I'm we're recording this in 2020, I should say, but the love affair that emerged in 2016 and has persisted until now in America with this kind of drain the swamp ideology, <laughs> where I'd rather have a a cartoon. I'd rather have a clown who admits he's a clown than to have a politician who is a clown who won't admit that he's a clown. And this is one of the things that's really, as you said, prophetic, prescient about this episode. But one of the things that we saw in 2016 was this kind of hijacking of the electorate by troll voters. And this idea that we're going to mischievously laugh our way into the White House. But really what we're voting for is, what we're doing is voting against the whole spectacle, the whole charade of American politics. So Tim Wu, who many people may know as a, he's a Columbia law professor and writes a lot about technology and probably is most famous for coining the term net neutrality. But Tim Wu published a book in 2016 called The Attention Merchants, which sort of traces mm -hmm. this history of advertising and how we got to this moment where the biggest industries in our lives are not actually selling us products. We are the products that are just capturing our attention and selling that to other people. And Tim Wu, he published this book in 2016, so too early to have seen the Trump presidency. But two years later, he re-released it with an extra chapter, and he called Donald Trump the first attention merchant president. And he said, this is something we may not be able to go back from, that this idea that we've all just acknowledged this is what politics is now. So I wonder what you think about that. Can we go back from what from where we are now? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. And I do think that the thinking in terms of attention is an interesting way to think about the whole episode. Unfortunately, the episode references Twitter and social media, but it doesn't really show up in the episode at all. Instead, right. we get these we get these sort of very like public square versions where Waldo shows up on the side of a truck and captures everyone's attention and the politician, right. you know, can't be seen. But I do think there's a certain sense in which that's Waldo functions as a kind of attention, an apparatus for capturing attention. And I do think that there's a certain way in which the intersection between entertainment and and politics in the sense that, because talk about Trump, Trump didn't just come from the world of, of entertainment. He also came from that strange world of entertainment where he was able to, through Twitter and so on, keep his name out there without really doing anything, right? Without really doing anything other than just occupying attention. He knew he has a very good ability to game the news cycle with getting a few tweets out there and getting people to pay attention to this. And, and I do feel like to, to a lot of people that felt like it was real, like it was doing something. Like the fact that he was always in the news made it feel like something was really happening. And it's interesting to see Trump well, sometimes even talk about this. He'll make fun of the idea of being presidential. He'll go up on his big rallies and he'll say, oh, I could be presidential. I could say, and he does this mock presidential voice and everyone yeah. laughs. And then, and he talks about how boring that would be and everyone cheers. And the way in which his ability to entertain is seen as in some sense more real than 
even though it's staged, just like the Waldo sort of thing, his ability to be entertaining is somehow seen as being more real and authentic because it's foregrounded as entertainment. I think that you said that exactly right. And it's interesting because when you compare what Trump does, this kind of buffoonish, boisterous appeal to real voters, the way that he performs populist appeal compared to, for example, Obama, Clinton, even Bush the Younger, and Reagan even, which was also a kind of appeal to the real voter, but in a different kind of performance. I'm the guy you want to have a beer with. I'm the real guy. But this new performance that is supposed to be the populist appeal is so odd, right? Because it's, it's not just saying, I'm not one of these stuffy academic politician, professionary politicians who's disconnected from the lives of real voters. It's really exaggerating this kind of thumbing your nose at it to the point where it's like, how stupid can I act? (laughs) How offensive can I be? How, you know, this is the sort of part of the Donald Trump appeal is I am unbound by the chains of political correctness. So that what it means to be authentic is becomes this kind of offensive, buffoonish. Yeah, I don't even know all the other words that I have for it are themselves offensive and buffoonish, probably. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's interesting that you bring up because I don't know if everyone's used to be this during the Bush years of W, there was this whole thing like the person you want to have a beer with was considered to be the litmus test of authenticity. Right. And which is strange because he doesn't didn't drink. But anyways, but the same thing. He drank a lot. In the past, yeah. (laughs) But And I don't know if anyone's asked that question to Trump, but I don't think Trump works on that level in the sense that people don't actually want to, like, hang out with Trump. The authenticity has more to do with his realness has to do with more with who he's pissing off than who he's ingratiating himself to. In Mm. the sense that it's not like, I like this guy, but I like the fact that this guy is pissing off the people that I dislike and have and dislike me. This sort of sense of a kind of not wanting to relate to the person, but relating to the person through who they make angry and who they offend and how that seems more authentic than being able to directly relate to the person. But don't you think that with Donald Trump, there's also this really bizarre sense that a lot of people, A, believe his story about being a successful businessman, for which there is exactly zero evidence, believe his story about being capable of governing, for which there is exactly zero evidence, and C, weirdly, in him, in his imagined successes in these enterprises, something that they can identify with, which is strange to me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, this is a guy like me. There's nothing about him that is, if you just look at the demographics of Trump voters, what his voters are, but he is appealing to them. And they see themselves in him in some way. But I think you're exactly right that it's not in anything substantive. It's not in anything positive. It's only in something critical and something negative. 
Yeah, because if, I mean, if you write down Trump's qualities on paper, New Yorker, real estate developer, so on and so forth, you would have it looks like something that's far from any kind of populist sort of appeal. If you look at all the different ways you could describe him, until you look at the way in which he comports himself, and the way in which he talks, the way in which he tweets, who he's angry at, his sense, and I think his sense of perpetually being slighted is something that people relate to. And I thought that this was, to go back to the Waldo moment for a second, I did think it's interesting, and I do think, going back to the sense that it really is too rushed, but that the turning point in the Waldo character going viral is the moment when Jamie thinks that this woman is not interested in him. And he, and he right. dredges up all right. this kind of hostility towards her. That's very personal. It's very intimate because they had this strange night together where first he's passing himself off as being very, he's very forward with her. He sits down right next to her, starts talking to her. And then we see his, we cut to his room. It's messy. She makes a joke. He's like a 14 year old. But then in the, in the night he wakes up and he's, it's very much this like, the sense of not a one night stand at all is you're like, he's very like emotionally vulnerable and wants her to respond in a particular kind of way. And then when she cuts it off with him, he has such anger towards her that it really fuels his performance. And of course, later, and this is, I, I admitted this later, there is a scene when he finally goes to conf talk to her and she says to him, she's, I would have called you back after the election, that to some extent is, is very excessive in, in relationship to what happened between the two of them. But I do think that the Waldo moment, one of the ways it's prescient is the way in which it connects personal slights and almost a kind of, uh, I, I was just teaching Kate Mann's book on, on misogyny. There's a certain sense in which there is very much from Jamie, this idea that like this woman is supposed to offer him this kind of emotional support and so on. And when she doesn't, then that's where the real anger comes out. Yeah. Yeah, the gender politics of this episode are, one, grossly under-acknowledged when people talk about this episode, but also really super interesting because we Jamie does play out this textbook incel story mm -hmm. where he's a sensitive underachiever who's mediocre in almost every way, except for some kind of fantastic fantasy game-playing sort of way. And then the first time that he's rejected, it's like the floodgates of toxic masculinity are opened. It doesn't really work on the screen as well as it doesn't talk about it, because it doesn't play out as well, but I think it's, it's intended there. And there is an earlier scene where he's, in fact, you see him before he goes on, to perform as Walter, the first scene, he's talking to what is presumably an ex. And she's, you have to stop calling me, focus mm -hmm. on Waldo, Waldo's going well for you. Why don't you get over this and focus on your career? But I do think it's interesting the way in which the episode tries to at least connect, although it doesn't really succeed, I think, the his own toxic masculinity, his sense of what women should be providing for him and the Waldo character's kind of performance of a certain kind of political skepticism, they don't really connect as much as they should to make the episode really work. But I do think there, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, and I think that this is another really good example of how this episode could have benefited from being its own series, from telling the story more 
slowly and carefully. There is a moment uh, later in the episode where he accuses Gwendolyn of only running for office because she's trying to put together basically a film reel to to be an actress or some kind of a reality star or maybe even like a talking head on a news show or something. And it's interesting because what is obviously implied in that accusation is that she's prostituting herself, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, also what he's implicitly accusing all the other politicians about, but he doesn't say it that way to the men. This kind of growing distrust in politicians and, you know, coupled with this obsession with celebrity culture is something that I think is the most kind of prescient elements of this Black Mirror episode and really are the sort of perfect storm that created Trump. Now, here's a question for you. If if we want to read this as a map of how to interpret the last four or five years of American politics. Who do you think is Trump? Is it Jamie or is it Waldo? That's interesting. I think it's more Jamie. Really? You don't Uh, think that Trump is the cartoon that someone else is is Waldoing? Yeah, I guess maybe the better answer would be, I think if Trump is Waldo, then Jamie are the Trump supporters. Okay, let me float this. I think sure. okay, so I think that Trump is Waldo. Yeah. But I think Jamie is Mitch McConnell and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller is the sort of people who are in their own kinds of ways inept and frustrated and angry people, but who have some ability to do things. Right. right but who aren't, who can't be the face of the things that they do. It seems to me that Trump is just the puppet. Yeah. The interesting thing about the puppet thing aspect is that there is the one, there's the character, I think it's Jack Napier, the producer of the Waldo show. And at one point he has a conversation with Jamie where he puts forward this kind of odd, almost Silicon Valley utopian version of politics. Where he's like, we could all, we all have cell phones. We could all vote on everything. We don't need politicians anymore. Yeah. And I and I think that's that's the role of Zuckerberg or the Silicon Valley in general. Like they have created the platform that made Trump possible. They were not picturing something like Trump. They were picturing something much more. Oh, we would all weigh in on important issues on our phones, but that has been taken over by someone like Trump doesn't really bother them that much because it's still giving them the attention they need. It's still driving their platforms. It doesn't really trouble them. But I I think it's interesting that the episode does include that little kind of moment of techno-utopianism as, oh, we could just get rid of the fake politicians. Everyone would weigh in on every issue with their phone as being one of the things that's driving this shift towards this monstrosity of celebrity and state coming together in this figure of Waldo. Yeah, and arguably that is what happened in the last election, in the 2016 election anyway, which is that social media platforms effectively became the the agora. Everybody was voting with their phones in one way or another. I like that you say that it's presented as a kind of 
utopian tech vision, because I think when you listen to people like Mark Zuckerberg, and this is maybe less true of people like Jack Dorsey, but when you listen to people like Mark Zuckerberg, I still believe that he believes that, you know, what he's created, this platform that he's created has these kind of utopian possibilities and that one of these days they're going to figure out how to work out the kinks, how to keep it from being hacked in a way, hacked for evil. But that also imagines that the mechanisms of politics themselves are not changing as the platforms are being fixed. So this idea that Facebook could be the perfect public square, which I do think Mark Zuckerberg thinks that it can be, assumes that we still need public squares. Throughout the episode, Jamie keeps thinking, like as he appears on these different talk shows, that he's going to get be found out, or he's gonna be called out as a fraud. And he keeps right. being worried about that. And I think it's interesting that it's almost the reverse of some of the way that Trump was talked about, that at a certain point, Trump was gonna cross the line and people were going to reject him. And just like in the episode, that it turns out that these sort of figures of sort of media establishment don't really have the weight to, to contest Waldo. And in a similar way, I feel like the moment that Trump supposedly crossed the line never came, right? There's a, there's a whole kind of, you'd see this thing as liberal media, like, okay, this time he's really yeah. going. People are going to turn <laughs> on him. And it kept happening and again. And like, it's that trombone. <laughs> no, that's true. And... Interestingly, he ended up being defeated by someone who did not play this game at all. I guess the question is, did he never cross the line? Trump beat himself in the 2020 election, right? The Democrats literally put up like the most milk toast <laughs> octogenarian that you could possibly imagine, and he still won. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I totally agree in the sense that Biden's whole candidacy seemed like someone read one of those polls that happened early on where they put Trump against any Democrat and they were like, let's get any Democrat. Like, let's get a generic. <laughs> and, you know, as if you could get the generic category to run and not a specific individual. And I think Biden ran as the generic category, not a specific individual. I think it's interesting to think about Trump defeating himself. And I think this goes back to the, the criticisms I have of the episode is that at one point in a discussion with a CIA person, he says, we could use your platform to deliver any content. It doesn't have to j just be negative. It could also be positive. And when I saw that, I was like, no, I don't think that would work like that. The content has to be the content, this kind of transgressive, cynical, even nihilistic sort of figure that Waldo is, I don't think you could turn around and make Waldo something else. Although it appears that's what the end of the episode kind of alludes to, because there are there are clips of Waldo in this giant TV of Waldo and words believe next to him, which mm -hmm. seems bizarre. But at the same time, part of what Trump, in his own weird way, understood during COVID-19 is that he couldn't use his position to show up on television and say, hey, this is serious. We got to wear masks. We got to do stuff. He couldn't use his celebrity to deliver any kind of content. He had to keep playing the same role, which is to his 
to his followers, it's very much, I think, this notion like, I'm not going to ask anything of you. I'm going to give you things. I'll give you tax breaks and so on. But I'm going to I'm going to reserve the force of the state on these people that we don't like. And we're going to, that's how I'm going to continue to govern. So he had no way, because he couldn't deliver any message with his sort of particular kind of sphere of attention. He couldn't handle COVID-19 on some level. This is where I really do love Tim Wu's analysis that basically says, again, that Trump was an attention merchant president. His only message was ever, look at the squirrel, look at the squirrel, look at the squirrel. And there were always new squirrels to distract us, but there was nothing ever really substantive there. And it became a presidency of having to amp up the intensity of the attention getting exercise every week. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is, at present, ad-free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. That's patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. And now back to our conversation. But if I could go back for just a second, because you did bring up that subplot about the CIA and the Waldo moment, which I really love this. And I have a couple of questions for you about that. One is, so the CIA see this Waldo phenomenon happening in this UK by-election, and they think this is great. We could take this and we, I think they even say we could use this in Central America. So there's, there's this kind of, backhanded reference to U.S. interference in elections all over the world. But this idea that we could take this model and put it in any society and control the populace through this kind of really base and broad appeal to populism. So my first question is, can you imagine that being the case, not as a political strategy, but as like using not actual human politicians that we could be to could come to the point where like politicians don't like trounce all over the country and spend hundreds of millions of dollars having campaign rallies and meeting face to face with people but the campaigns are entirely on digital platforms on television you know and podcasts but we we never we could never really know whether or not the candidate is an actual politician or not. And so could entirely be controlled by something like that. That's my first question. The second question about this sort of CIA <laughs> subplot also is, what do you make of this idea that, I think it's, it's attributed to the CIA in the episode, but seems to also be the point of view of the episode, that voters are just stupid and easy to manipulate. And and there, but go, for the grace of God, go all of us that this mm-hmm. hasn't happened yet. Of course, this was made in 2013. It has now happened, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the first question, I don't, it seems to me that's much more plausible that people would 
vote for a Waldo-like candidate as like a protest vote or a joke. And then those all those little acts of protest vote and jokes add up and suddenly we find ourselves in the situation where the Waldo has actually gotten elected, even though no one really intended it to be, which is also not to ties all this back to Trump, I think is truly what happened to Trump. I don't think Trump thought he was going to win. I don't think Trump wanted to win on some level. I think Trump wanted to build up his brand and found himself in the awkward position of winning and couldn't obviously couldn't say no to that. I, I don't think that an artificial sort of candidate could do what Waldo ultimately does in this episode and go for world domination. I thought that the last couple moments of the episode with the jet planes and so on was like, okay, it's really crude. <laughs> I get the point. You're trying to say that this Waldo thing has become like, has changed politics, but they're not going to put Waldo's face on the jet plane, no matter what happens. That seems <laughs> kind of too far. But then again, going back to what you were saying earlier about Trump, it's like the, the strangest thing about Trump is not just that people like that he's pissing off people, but the number of Trump flags that are out there. Yeah, and, the and hats. Of, and hats. And also the strange, the weirdest thing I always think about Trump is the way in which conservative cartoonists draw him and paint him he mm -hmm. looks i'm like are you looking at the same person <laughs> he has this like manly physique and it, it seems like there seems to be this weird relationship of perception that i just don't understand on the other side of things in the sense that people are apparently looking at the same thing that i'm looking at but what they're seeing seems so radically different that i can't understand how we're looking at the same thing but uh, but even the things that you're looking at and I'm looking at are still Trump, right? Like that, that's where I do think those final scenes of the Waldo moment are right. If we could find this politician, real or fiction or artificial, that only job was to dominate our attention, that it would be everywhere. And that has been my life for the last four years. And I did not vote for Trump. My life right. has been constant Trump in my face, constant Trump everywhere, constant Trump grabbing my attention. And so it doesn't really matter after a certain point if you're for him or against him. He's already accomplished what the form of that kind of a candidate is meant to do, which is to distract us all. Right. And I think there's also an important thing about the way in which he dominates attention and the sense that his preferred medium is Twitter. And Twitter yeah. is very unlike, because it's very unlike saying, going on TV and stopping all the network programming and, and saying, I'm going to address the nation now, where that seems very imposed to us. Oh God, I, I really wanted to watch whatever I wanted to watch tonight. And suddenly the president's there and I didn't want this and this is annoying, blah, blah, blah. But the way that Twitter and social media functions is in this kind of pseudo-democracy in the sense that if you see a Trump tweet or see Trump trending, it's because other people have shared it, react to it, made fun of it, so on and so forth. It appears to be much more from the ground up rather than imposed from above. Right? The difference between trending on Twitter and a national address is a national address seems very imposed from above. Trending on Twitter seems like it comes from everyone paying attention. And there's this strange kind of self-replicating thing, right? The Trump thing is always like, you every day you're like, I don't want to talk about Trump today. I'm not going to talk about Trump today. And mm -hmm. then suddenly you see a thing and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. And then you find yourself talking about it and you didn't want to. And that's how it appears to people like you and I, but to people who are less critical of him, it does appear 
much more there's a strange just irony in the fact that Trump's tweeting and everyone could have a Twitter account. It doesn't require the office of the president behind it, but in the way in which it goes viral and going viral is a strange way in which you can capture people's existing sentiments and feelings and make it seem like they themselves are participating rather than being scripted by the going viral kind of moment. That's why I think in the episode of Black Mirror, it's integral that Walder goes viral at the moment that Jamie leans into the more misogynistic response to the woman. That taps into a whole army of kind of incels and frustrated men out there that would circulate that clip. And you can only go viral if you, in some sense, react to already existing sentiments and ideas people have, but then twist them and turn them into something other than what they may, might have expected and use that kind of channeling of desires to turn what already existed into something that no one could have anticipated, which is, I think, I mean, is what Waldo does. That's a really interesting description of virality. I wish I had so I'm shooting from the hip here because I haven't had more time to think about this. But it seems to me that when something goes viral, that the going viral is already evidence that attention has been captured. It's not as if something goes viral and then we pay attention to it. Our attention has already been captured when it's viral. And what we now know, of course, is that there are all kinds of just algorithmic ways to manufacture that sort of attention capture. But you seem to want to say that if there's something really attention worthy there, and then it gets manipulated in some way, which is why it goes viral. To take the classic narrative has been circulating around Trump ever since he, he ran, that there, there were real insecurities that he was in his, in his discussion of say, jobs or bringing back jobs or the bad deals America's been subject to. There's a certain sense in which I think at every point in going viral, there's an intermingling of actually existing situations and actually existing sort of sentiments and so on and their distortion. And it's very hard to, to sort out what already is there and what is distorted. But I think the virality sets up a kind of feedback loop mm -hmm. where once it circulates, then people are like, yes, that is it. That's the thing I feel. And, and I think this is what happens with Waldo, that people feel that politicians aren't real, are not being authentic. And then that gets expressed in a particular kind of way, which both reflects that, but also shapes it at the same time. And once the viral clip is out there, it allows people to reinterpret what they were already feeling. And, oh, yes, that's the thing. It's this strange moment of like, almost like a, a moment in psychology about where a therapist tells you what something it was. You never would have thought about it that way. But suddenly, once you think about it in that new way, yes, that's it. That's been my issue all along. Once that happens, it's like almost a phase shift. Like it's taken on a different consistency once you can recognize it and point to it. That, and I think that's what is suggested in the sort of Waldo example, that people have these sentiments about politicians and politics, but once Waldo expresses them, they take on a particular kind of role. And it's very difficult, once the genie's out of the, the, the bottle, to go back from it. In, in the scene in the episode where Jamie you know, steps out of the van and tries to say 
Don't pay attention to that. That's just a cartoon. I made it. I'm the one who created that. Once the sort of feeling sort of coalesced around the image of Waldo and the figure of Waldo, what Waldo's saying, it's hard to go back to. Which goes back to your, your earlier question. What is politics after Trump going to look like? Either there's a strange vacuum where no one's occupying our attention in the same way, or that attention gets mobilized in a different sort of way. You could imagine Trump continuing to be Trump post the presidency and continue. And this is what I think, how he's holding the Republican Party hostage. They're all afraid that, that he's going to continue to dominate the airwaves of attention. Yeah, and this reminds me, because another possibility of what happens next could be something exactly like happens in that scene from the episode that you just mentioned, where Jamie leaves the sort of television van and jumps out and speaks to the real people, real Jamie speaks to the you know real people and says, don't, you know, pay no attention to this screen. I'm the man behind the screen. Right. And I'm telling you, pay no attention to this. You shouldn't listen. You should vote for real politicians. This is all a show, et cetera. But as he's doing that, someone else steps in his place, like behind right. the screen and starts to manipulate the Waldo and says, punch that man, punch that man who's denouncing me, who's decrying me, who's, who's trying to not acknowledge what you feel and not, you know, and this is what I worry about is that this character that Trump occupied was a character that anybody can step into and, and manipulate. And maybe then it might be that, and it's, entirely possible to me that this will happen in the next year or so is that someone else steps into that spot and they have to sacrifice Trump, right? Like in Mm -hmm. some way and say, yeah, beat that guy up. He was never us. Pay attention to me now. But that the Waldo doesn't change. The Waldo is the same. I want to go back to the, my other question that I asked you a minute ago though, which is this sort of view of voters as the hoi polloi, the, the stupid mob. Yeah, yeah, I dodged that for a reason. I don't, I don't, I don't like, you know, stupidity as a political, like, term of analysis. I just think it's, it just doesn't work for me. I, I'm more comfortable thinking in terms of attention. It's more useful to think about the notion that people have, I don't think people are especially stupid, people have capacities to pay attention to various different things. And it's about what channels and co-ops that attention and how it is able to utilize it. I think one of the interesting scenes in the episode is when they're out in the van the first time, the kind of producer person or assistant woman who's with Jamie says, that woman with a pram, talk to her for a minute. It kind of picks up on her as being like, maybe she's got a kid. She's like, she's maybe like working and supporting this kid. She's maybe someone who might, if someone pays attention to her, she might really pick up on that. Cause maybe she's, it's a sense that you have to figure out the people who, if they feel like they're being responded to, they'll pay that back in spades. That they will really like, oh, this thing paid attention to me. This is really important to me. I'm going to focus my energy that way. And so I do think it's more about a kind of economy of attention than it is a notion of a kind of the hoi polloi or stupid. And it's also the sense that there's a certain way in which throughout the episode, Waldo isn't wrong in, in many points. When he, even when he has the harshest criticism of Gwendolyn Harris, 
she is running in a Tory dominated section. It is to some extent, even though she is a sincere person and portrayed as one who sincerely wants to change things in an effective way, it the line about this being for a highlight reel is not entirely wrong. In fact, she says it herself initially, but it's not entirely right either in the sense that it's not just that. And I think that this is the thing that constantly I go back to in the sense that trying to make a distinction between the sort of generic categorical skepticism that ultimately I think leads to acquiescence of they're all corrupt to a more focused and articulate understanding of what are the interests and role of say money and politics, et cetera. And the difference between understanding that versus thinking they're all corrupt and how the more categorical statement in my view always just leads to apathy or indifference. And they sound very similar, right? People will, will, if you start talking about like Marxist theories of politics, people will say, oh, everyone's out for their self-interest. Like, no, they're not, that's, that's not the same thing, right? That there is a distinction between the universal, everyone's corrupt, everyone's, you know, in it for themselves. And the idea that there are moneyed class interests running systems in particular ways to get what they want, those are two different statements in my view. They sound a lot alike, but they're very different. And I'm always wary of the generalized version because of where it ends up. And I think, as is illustrated in the episode, it ends up in being susceptible to all kinds of manipulations. You said, I'm not comfortable with referring to the electorate as stupid, which I think is fair. But then you described the electorate, and these are not your words, I'm I'm describing your description back to you, but you described the electorate as very manipulatable, easily manipulatable. And so they may not be stupid, but they don't have a kind of robust sense of agency, or if they do have it, they don't use it. And I do think that there's a very, it's just a short step from that view of the electorate to saying, look, there are these large corporate multinational moneyed interests, bourgeois interests that are controlling your lives and there's nothing you can do about it. And then you end up in the same fatalistic, dystopic vision Mm -hmm. that we end up with at the end of this episode. And it sounds to me that is definitely something that you want to resist, that you want to preserve room for us to reject Waldo Mm -hmm. and, and to say yes to some kind of substantive political program Maybe that's democracy, maybe that's something else, but that we're not just, we're not Waldos, right? Like we're not robots that can be controlled by some man behind the screen. So how do you reconcile that? I think one of the things that I find useful is thinking in terms, not just in, in terms of stupidity and intelligence, but also thinking in terms of affects like hopes and fears and so on. I think one of the things to illustrate it with the current example, why are so many people skeptical about the existence of COVID-19 or think it's all hoax or whatever? And I think that part of the reason people are so susceptible to being told it is a hoax or it's not, or it's only the flu and so on 
is that when they have no real ability to stay home, to protect themselves from it, and they're going to have to go to work and go out in the world and so on and so forth, it is easier to believe that it's not real than it is to believe that it is real and that they're being exposed to it, maybe even unnecessarily. It goes back to the opening line of Spinoza's Theological Political Treatise, where he says, look, if we were not susceptible to hopes and fears, if we controlled our lives, then we would never fall prey to superstition. We fall prey to superstition, not because we don't are capable of knowing any better, but because we have hopes and fears that have to do with aspects of lives we cannot control. And those are the things that make us susceptible to being manipulated. That's why the masses fight for their servitude as if it was salvation, is because we have hopes and fears that are not being addressed. And if they're not being addressed by the existing political system, etc., we will flock to whoever seems like they're going to address them. I feel like it's the same, go back to the Trump example, Trump was able to present people's feeling of economic impotence in a way that worked. This idea he had, I make deals, bad deals have been made, I'm going to make good deals, was a better response to things than what people were currently being sold, which is go into debt, go to school, and that will solve everything for you. Or the it offered a way to pe for people to understand their situation and understand how their situation could be transformed. And I feel like part of my discomfort with this question of stupidity is that it often is framed in purely intellectual terms without being framed in terms of affects and moods. And I think that's partly what Waldo's about too, that Waldo captures and is able to offer people a way to feel about the world. And that's more important necessarily in a way of thinking about the world. I do agree with you that our affects and moods drive many of our not only political decisions, political thinking, but especially our political actions. I'm less comfortable, or I should say, I'm more comfortable than you are, I think, in describing being driven primarily by affects and moods in my political decisions and political actions as not the most intelligent way to participate in politics. Now, that might just be a matter of degree and not of mm -hmm. a difference in degree and not of kind. But I do hear what you're saying. And I do think that this actually is what is fantastic about this episode is it's a focus on the politics of affect. of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Jason, we're coming near the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you three questions that I have asked all of my guests so far. I'm going to state them all in a row and then you can answer them all in a row. So the first question is, what do you think is the lesson that we should take from the Waldo moment? The second question is, what in the Waldo moment do you find the most disturbing or concerning or that worries you the most? And then finally, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a total 
nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a utopia, where would you place this episode? Go. Question number one, I think the focus really is about the intersection of entertainment and politics, that we don't think about this enough, and we don't think about the way in which entertainment's ability to capture and mobilize attention can be easily transferred over into political forms of capturing and mobilizing attention and be used to, to mobilize it into all kinds of disturbing ways. I think in retrospect, and I wasn't expecting this until I watched it again, was the intersection of the gendered politics and the larger politics that Jamie, as a lot of people don't like about the episode, they think he's such an like, unrelatable character, but to me, his ability to switch from being utterly pathetic to filled with this kind of rage is the most disturbing thing about the episode because I feel like that is something we see more and more in the, the prophetic aspect of the episode. As, and then the last question, this has to be like one of the most dystopian episodes of Black Mirror. It's, it literally ends with a global dystopia, whereas <laughs> other episodes, and this is what I, I like about it too, even though it doesn't deal with it. There are some episodes of Black Mirror where you, you see a particular individual's relationship to this new technology, and you're left wondering, so is everyone having these kind of issues? Is everyone getting messed up by the memory sort of device and does it destroying their relationships too? But this episode, I think, really underscores, and maybe in a heavy-handed way, that the Waldo moment doesn't just shape a particular individual, a particular race in, in this particular district in the UK. It actually transforms the world. But of course, I think the, its ability to go full dystopian is also part of why people don't like it in the sense that it does seem to get there a little too quick and stretches some kind of credibility. I, I always thought that the Waldo on the jet planes was going too far, but then I started seeing Trump flags and now I'm like, maybe it's not going too far. Maybe <laughs> that's exactly where this goes. I always thought the Waldo character made more sense as something who could disrupt and undermine people's faith in other politicians rather than become a figure of kind of allegiance. Now I, I see how those two things can work together and maybe the Waldo on the jet planes is actually still a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what you said at the beginning of this episode where you mentioned, had someone written this a few years ago, you would have said, no, that's ridiculous. Right. It's, it's too heavy-handed. But Jason, this has been a great conversation. I so appreciate doing this and we should talk more often. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Right. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. <laughs>